Hi everyone and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science podcast where we look at how behavioural and social sciences are being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. My name's Stu King and I'm here with my co-host Dr Tiago Motella. Hello Tiago, how are you sir? Hiya. Uh, I'm very good. Wow, uh, that's an I, interesting that way to come into the that, show. That, that sounded way better in my head, actually. So, um, yeah? yes, I'm well, very good. That's, that's just, to ex- just to express how well I am. Uh, I'm very excited. Good. Well, I, this is the one with you in it. So this is this is a better show for you than just listening to Thank me drone on. Um, OK, so I'm not going to do a big intro because we already did that with Rachel. As I mentioned in the last show, um, we we recorded a show with Rachel uh, about a year and a, uh, nearly a year and a half ago now, um, and then we had a hiatus, as I mentioned in the last one in the last show, um, and this is um, and instead of picking up a five minute sort of what are you doing now just so that make sure it's current, we ended up doing another thirty five minutes. So this is that thirty five minutes instead of losing a load of great content because we think what Rachel's doing is so awesome and really really interesting. I'm not going to do a uh, an intro, but here's the second half of uh, Rachel's show. Okay, we're back again with um, Rachel from Zinc, and we wanted to do a bit of an update based on the fact that I actually didn't get a podcast out for over a year. So um, thank you again for coming back to, back and speaking to us, Rachel. Um, why don't you just come back and, and talk about uh, where you're at now with Zinc? Thanks, Stu. Thanks for having me back. And yeah, kind of amazing how much things change in just over a yeah. year. Um, so pleased to be able to give a short update on where we are now. I think when we last spoke, we were about to start or had just started a venture builder program on uh, children's mental health. So we uh, ran that. We have some great ventures that have come through that program. Um, And we're now currently in the middle of a new program focused on the climate crisis, um, transforming industries that have the biggest impact on the environmental crisis. And we're also now recruiting for a program on uh, financial resilience, which will kick off in April. So we've been very pertinent. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's kind of deliberate. So we we have this flexibility. We have overarching missions we're interested in, but we have flexibility to have a particular slant on one of those missions or bring one forward or push one back, depending on what feels salient and timely. So um, oh, yeah. that's a deliberate um, choice that we're able to make. Um, Amazing. So that's where we are in terms of the venture builder. And I guess because we're now in this, um, you know, five and a half years or so, and we've, um, we've raised a fund, which gives us a bit more of a line of sight into the future, we're able to think a little bit more strategically about what, else we might want to do and where we want to get to and um and what we want to focus on both in the short term and also you know uh in the longer term where we want to be so um i thought it might be good to just share some of those plans yeah Yeah, for sure so um one of the things i spoke about last time that we've been focused on from the beginning of zinc really is how we can make sure that science and research and evidence are built into the foundations of new ventures as they're created. Mm. And, you know, I joined partly because I was interested in how we can leverage 
the resources and experimentation and scale of high growth ventures um, in order to have an impact on these important problems, but also create new opportunities for research and researchers. And that's been something I've been kind of really focusing in on in the last few months and thinking about how we can um, how we can progress um, our own uh, activities and programs uh, in that direction. So um, I suppose the benefit of being in Zinc from the beginning and experimenting over the last few years is rather than sort of thinking about this in the abstract, you get the chance to really experiment in real time and, and think through yeah, what yeah. works and what doesn't, as you'll know, um, which is the sort of one of the big advantages of being in this type of organization. Um, and, and, and also out, out of academic timelines as well, which are also very long. Um, it's one of the reasons that Tiago actually <laughs> didn't want to be in it anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, I think it's the other extreme. Um, you know, we we're very much in the startup world in terms of the organizations we build and support. But we're also, you know, still in some ways a startup ourselves, having been mm. only going since 2017. Um, and going from, you know, academia then into a corporate environment, both of which in different ways are highly structured and, yeah, um, yeah. you know, not the same in terms of timelines, but probably closer to each other than to this world of early stage, early, early stage innovation. Um, and there is something kind of equally terrifying and refreshing about the pace in this particular yeah, bit yeah. of the world, as you'll probably both know. For sure, yeah. I, I, I have to say, I listened back to the show to prepare for the update um, that you, you kindly agreed to come back for. And I said to you before the show, it's not, not in an arrogant way, but I loved listening to it because I loved hearing about all of the stuff that you were doing. I think at the time I found it, re I found it really interesting. But when I listened back, I think our own journey sort of maybe came through it a little bit. And I thought I'd, I'd love to get involved in Zinc a little bit more. So I'll talk to you that <laughs> after the show. After the show. Uh, I'm not leaving busybodies or anything. I just, loved, I just thought it was such a great opportunity to sort of influence and support people in that sort of early stage of their career, which is a real passion of mine. And I bet that all the people that you work with sort of have that passion for developing people and sort of growing. Yeah, growing totally. Uh, and it's one of the things we say a lot, actually, is that the thing that really gets us all up in the morning is sort of talent and unlocking and mm. supporting individuals who really care about these problems, whether they're coming from, you know, research or um, technology or creative industries or whatever background they're from, that they're unified by this particular mission and we're able to, in different ways, hopefully support them to accelerate their own impact um yeah. so yeah that's certainly the the bit that's most rewarding is working with interesting talented people from such a range of backgrounds um and then i suppose we've also grown as an organization internally so you know we've been able to recruit um an amazing team in-house including a bunch of scientists and researchers um mm. which has um a good grounding in behavioral science but we've also got people from different disciplines some of whom are mission specific so you know we'll bring in people with specific expertise in climate for example or specific expertise yeah. in healthy aging and then some of whom have more cross-cutting skills um, and because the team is growing I suppose all of our roles are slightly evolving as needed at different stages of the organization mm -hmm. and mine is um, no exception to that so 
moved into a, a, a sort of more strategic role, as I said, thinking about our place in the research and innovation ecosystem and uh, and what we can do to help improve connectivity, really, um, which is a key goal. Mm. So, um, yeah, I've become kind of interested in uh, how we can make startups a science-rich, research-rich environment that applies research in a really uh, systematic way, but also advances research. So um, produces new knowledge and and also synthesizes and shares it. Um, And one key strand that has become very clear to us, which I think I briefly mentioned last time, is the flows of talent uh, from research institutions coming into the startup world and then progressing their careers in that context and how those roles and those individuals might act as sort of key connectors within the research and innovation system, having seen both sides of the table, speaking both languages and being able to progress a research agenda, but within this very different context to traditional uh, academic research projects. So that's one of the things we've become really interested in is how we can on the one hand, support the mobility of researchers to more fluidly move into these roles in this setting. And then once they're there, how we can formalize and connect them and support them to progress their careers within that context so that they don't feel like they have to leave their research career uh, at the door of the university and move into a role that's applied and therefore somehow not related to research anymore, which just isn't the case, but it's not a kind of pathway that's particularly visible or valued or supported, I think. Do you think, do you think so having... Really, yeah, I was going to say, I'm interested in hearing your Yeah, this I was just going to say, do you think having that background, that researchy background kind of helps that transition, kind of facilitates how, how they get embedded in, in the organisation and the way they think about those things? I think it's, um, I think a lot of the skills are hugely transferable. The skills you'll get through a MSc or PhD program, for example, broad research training, I think are incredibly valuable and applicable. Um, I think there's research to suggest that we tend to undervalue our cross-cutting research skills or skills in things like communication or teamwork or project management and overestimate our sort of domain, the the relevance of our domain specific, topic specific knowledge when going into these types of applied roles. Um, The learning curve I think is um, often very steep, maybe particularly in this world of early stage startups, which is very um, different as we've said in terms of pace and so on. Um, But I think it's, very quickly clear once you're embedded in that setting how your skills can be applied and how they can be um, applied in a way that works really nicely with other disciplines and skill sets like design and um, tech and marketing and other functions that will be embedded within that venture as well. So yeah, I think um, the skills are certainly hugely transferable. There just tends to be a bit of a a need to bridge the immediate gap so that there's visibility of options and some supported mechanism to get you from A to B. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense because, uh, as you say, even though the, some of the some of the skills can be uh, 
replicable into you know the more academic setting and industry i think i agree with you in terms of that it takes some time for that adaptation to happen but then you can see exactly where your skills can be applied and i think it's you know different things will appeal to different people it's yeah. certainly not the case that early stage startups are going to be for everyone um there's lots of reasons why it's challenging <laughs> she's shaking his head uh, <laughs> um i think there's lots of reasons why they will appeal in terms of for example giving you the opportunity to really shape the direction of something yeah. in, from an early stage you know with usually quite a small team on the other hand you won't have the resources or the data or the um, in-house teams of a larger more established company so there's trade-offs and it's not going to be for everyone i think the um the overlooked aspect to me is just that a lot of us don't have the opportunity to try out these different settings to really understand where we fit and what appeals. We might get a sort of career talk that gives us a, a flavor of it, but it's very rare that you get the opportunity to really try it and try different roles in different settings to figure out where you fit best and what, you know, um, what a good uh, match for your skills and interests are. So I think that's sort of a, a bit of a gap that we need to, to, to fix. Um, so we've been thinking about the kind of transition piece. So how do you create more supportive pathways to get people coming out of MSCs, PhDs, postdocs and beyond into these um, venture roles? Um, even if, you know, it's not somewhere that they end up staying long term, I think there is just that sort of bridge building that needs to happen to uh, provide a more supportive transition. But one of the things we've become even more interested in um, recently is because we've been um, interviewing behavioral scientists working in startups for a project we're coming to the end of, funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. We've been hearing from behavioral scientists in all sorts of different roles in startups, whether it's in, you know, a clinical role or an evaluative role or a marketing role or a data science role or a UX role. There's this incredible patchwork of behavioral science activity happening in these settings, um, which is at the moment not particularly well connected or supported and not particularly visible. Um, and most of those researchers don't have access to the things you would get if you were a researcher in a university. So they won't have access to funding opportunities, to dissemination opportunities in the same way, to peer communities, to mentorship. Um, and so we've been thinking about how we could build a sort of infrastructure that provides those things for researchers who are embedded within research roles in startups uh, in a way that it could allow them to progress their research career and agenda um, in those settings without having to kind of hang up their research hat at the door of the university. Yeah, that's that's very interesting because it, it, it's continued to contribute to that bridge between, you know, the, the, acad the academia and, and the real world. But because uh, I think I think listening to you, to you talking about in terms of opportunities and, and especially for people, you know, MSc level or early career researcher, it's just knowing that the opportunities are out there and, and as you say, just connecting the dots and speaking to people already working in those settings to kind of know what's out there and then ultimately experiment and, and see if that's the sort of thing they want to do. I do think that it's worth thinking back to something you said a minute ago about generalists, because 
<clears throat> even now generalists are still sort of i don't know they're not seen as the the uh, uh, as special as i think they really are um and in fact it takes me back to a you know the saying a jack of all trades mm -hmm. and a master of none mm -hmm. the full saying actually is uh, uh, the jack of all trades is a master of none but oftentimes better than a master of one and I don't think that comes through in that saying when you split it in half. People make out that's not a good thing. And, my, and, and especially in startup land, having been in a startup and well, having started a company, you have to be a jack of all trades. And early people coming in have to be too. You can't, it's not just the founder that, that has to be a jack of all trades. And I like the fact that you brought in diversity into these organizations because you said there's people who are, you know, really interested in certain other elements that aren't just being a founder or starting a, a company but that have really sort of operational um, ambitions and, and skills and talents having a place to bring that together the one thing that I think is really key for people to know in startups is you lack certainty most of the time about yeah. things and you lack stability in terms of a standardized job role that you can go and do you know day in day out and have really clear objectives and stuff like that that is just not the reality yeah. and and if you're excited by that it's great if you're if you're terrified by that it can be awful and i'd yeah. say that even at our size now we've got 100 people and we've 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 just become part of a bigger organization we still got that startup feel sometimes there's still a lot of chopping and changing particularly in in uh, my role and around that so but i think that's really for some people that's really exciting and i, I i'm quite jealous of the fact that you spend time helping <laughs> people navigate that because i think it's such an exciting thing to watch people go on that journey and and support them on that journey yeah um so so what have you got out at the moment then um rachel that you want to sort of tell people uh, about that you can that people can apply for can i just come back on the couple yeah, of those of points um first so i think you're right in terms of needing to broaden. I mean, in, you know, in academia, generally speaking, you are incentivized to be very specifically specialized in a particular area. And that changes, you know, as careers progress, but most of our PhDs were incredibly specific. And then you come out into roles where almost always you do have to do something slightly broader than that even if you're in a you know really research rich research intensive team where you have a particular role it tends to be um often slightly broader than your phd will have been particularly if you're in a startup context and um you know they're sometimes referred to as boundary spanners these individuals that can really take the kind of knowledge and learning and ideas with them and apply them in different settings in different ways as needed um, and that does i think that move to being a bit more generalist uh, speaking as someone who's definitely been on that path comes with a bit of its own existential crisis because it's <laughs> yeah, challenging sure. to go yeah. from really knowing what your expertise is and what your um, knowledge is about moving into territory where as you said you know a little bit about a lot of things and um and it's it's less clear that there's a kind of very um particular sharp bit of knowledge that you know you are completely up to speed yeah, yeah, yeah. on an expert yeah. in i think that is challenging for lots of people um it takes confidence to do that i think because you 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 you, you have to feel okay in the fact that you you, you you're not going to know as much as the experts in any one thing, but you'll know more than most in most things, if you like. That takes confidence to move that way. And I think just kind of knowing where your own 
boundaries are around what you'll give advice on and where you'll offer an opinion on something and knowing the caveats that you might want to put with that so that you're not misrepresenting the complexity of the topic or you're not misrepresenting the science, but you're also giving something tangible and actionable and useful. Because I think, you know, in the type of job that I have, if my response was, I can't possibly give you any advice on that because I'm not the expert, like I'd be really unhelpful in my yeah. job and, yeah. and, and out of yeah. a job probably pretty quickly. So it's yeah. kind of finding our own path through that and finding our own way to do it in a way that feels robust and uh, valid um, and practical and useful. Um, and then I think your point about sort of embracing uncertainty is really key. And that's the case for founders, but it's also the case for early team members. It's really, you know, a kind of uh, layers upon layers of uncertainty, both in terms of the job, the job focus, the future. Um, And that can be incredibly energizing because there's different directions you could go in, you can really shape things, but it's definitely um, also challenging and won't suit everyone, won't suit particular you know times of life and so is definitely something to consider really carefully um and i think part of it does come back to you can make a judgment about whether that's for you in the abstract i do think a lot of it will come back to just giving it a go and figuring yeah. out yeah. like if you'd asked me six years ago whether i was the type of person that would really embrace the level of uncertainty that it that's a company is being in a brand new organization i'm not sure i would have said yes and yet you know, I've really loved this journey we've been on over the last five and a half years. And actually the re- part of the reason it's always stayed interesting is because of the pace of change and the variety yeah. and the uncertainty in some ways about what's next. So, um, yeah. And it's like, it's like many things. If you, if you knew, and then lots of people do this, they look at the, the downsides of everything first, the risks of everything. And whether this has made it through the replication crisis or not, that that that, that um, weighing risks or, or or downsides twice as heavily as, as upsides is just very very human nature uh, for lots of people, and I think it's way harder for early stage um, employees in a startup than it is for the founder because by nature the founder is really energised by the by the mission, the journey, the excitement, the risk, etc to be one of the people coming in to support that you're probably not like the founder you're probably more it depends, it depends obviously sometimes it attracts really sort of similar people but i think in most cases if you look at rock book it, books like rocket fuel by gina whitman or something like that like you need a broad range of people within that team to be able to make the thing work and to, to translate those ideas that pace yeah. into something that's actually tangible otherwise the scalability doesn't come it just becomes chaos yeah um we certainly made that mistake a lot um early on and continue to sort of make that mistake sometimes now but um early on i think it's really crucial that people sort of know a bit about what they're getting themselves into but like you say if they knew it all they probably wouldn't make that leap because it would it would look too daunting yeah i think you know there's something about being able to just try things out um that you have the license to do when you're just starting out as an organization which is really rare i think in Mm. research roles in general that you have the chance to design something try it out in practice and change it if it's not working really quickly and easily that's what the organization is sort of built to do is to rapidly test and learn um and there's not huge numbers of roles and organizations that give you that 
license and freedom, which comes with a whole bunch of its own complexity and challenges. And again, won't be for everyone, but is also, uh, you know, very, um, it's very close to impact for people for whom that's important is you really feel like you're mm, quite yeah. close to, um, to, ha- to having an impact provided you're doing it in a way that's um, yeah. robust and ethical and, um, you know, it's been built in the right way from the beginning. But I, I think that, that there's there's a lesson to learn there for large, medium stage, say, um, startups and, and um, you know, small, medium enterprises. When you're a startup, the reason that you do it like that is because you don't have all the resources and there's a, there's a finite amount of time that you can do what you're doing before things get really, really sticky yeah. and you run out of money or you, you, you have to close or whatever. So you're driven to do the pressures there driving that and research institutions you know not not that they're just replete with money anymore or or, or i don't know if they ever were i think they probably were um but but certainly bigger companies where it's sort of there's more resources or whatever things are slower for obvious reasons in those well actually for varied reasons probably but there's something that you can learn from that i think from the startup and that is that that it, that pressure you've got to generate that pressure in different ways if you want to see that type of innovation and you've got to free people up to be able to make mistakes and learn from them yeah. quickly and be able to adapt their their style and you need to do that in a way that sort of is in keeping with how those people enjoy working mm-hmm. so if you can if you bring in so if you brought me for example into an organization i'm a terrible employee most places i'll <laughs> openly admit that because i always want to do the new thing i always want to look into to different stuff i always want to explore ideas mm-hmm. That doesn't. That, I've worked in the council, the NHS, the civil service. That way of working was really, really difficult to make work in those places. I had some great people that helped help facilitate that, but silently. We called it like a skunk works thing. Mm-hmm. And now we have a skunk works at Busybodies that we also <laughs> sort of run, where those people who are interested in working that way, we just sort of keep things quite, keep ideas quiet until they're <laughs> robust enough that we can socialise them a little bit more. Yeah. Tiago's in in the skunk works team. But I, I, I honestly think there's something, and I think this is why I enjoyed listening back to our show, because I, I genuinely think there's a lot that we should be learning for health, for public health, for um, education, for all these different areas that we don't take risks in because we don't like to take risks with health, wealth and education. Yeah. And I just think that there is so many things, there's so many lessons to learn and you don't have to do it for the whole organisation all at once. You could just say, okay, we're willing to commit to being dynamic in these yeah you know to this extent or yeah. whatever because the, the results are are phenomenal from doing something like that but you've got to create the right environment for that and i think that's what's so interesting and special about what zinc are doing to me is that you're creating an environment where people can come and do that and then it, and and on important issues not just the latest app that someone's developing although i'm sure there are apps developed through <laughs> zinc but yeah. you know like that's the classic I think that you're you're doing it in a way that's climate change, finance, aging. You know, these are really important issues that will have impact on those health, wealth, and education things that we're not taking risks in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I think it's really important for people to um, consider that type of the, the type of work that Zinc are doing. Um, I think it's partly you know it'll vary depending on the focus and depending on the stage, as you said. Um, there is certainly you know particular topics, particular populations where you actually do need to do things in a in a slow sure. and careful and considered yeah, way. Sure. And, you know, some of our ventures that yeah. are going down that route, digital therapeutics, etc., are, are doing it in that way. Um, but I think rather than seeing it as this sort of binary, like you're either 
incredibly slow and linear and rigorous or it's the wild west and there's no evidence and it's a free-for-all and it's all risk and no ups i think there's a whole spectrum in the middle and finding the right balance for certain types of ventures is really important um and then particularly for an organization like ours which is you know investing in startups and supporting them and learning along the way not just about innovation and venture building but also about the missions we're focused on that we're in a good position to sort of accumulate synthesize and share some of that knowledge as we go so that the learning isn't getting lost because i think a lot of those experiments and tests that you're describing uh the risks that folks are taking you know, we don't want to all be making the same mistakes in parallel. So the more we can synthesize and share that, the the better mm-hmm. um, when we're all sort of, you know, trying to uh, work towards the same end goals. Um, and just coming back to the discussion about researcher pathways and um, researchers moving into these roles in these settings, you know, I think sometimes we talk about those types of um, applied roles as if it's the sort of niche alternative non-traditional choice um, yeah. when actually the vast majority of PhD students end up in a non-academic role I think within three years is the um, data I've seen so rather than see it as sort of alt-ac and non-traditional and you know sort of um, applied research as its own separate bubble that isn't really research somehow which is a lot of times the narrative you hear that we're thinking about how we can really practically support researchers who choose to go down those other routes not as plan b but as a sort of attractive destination where they want to progress their careers for their own right not just because there's a push factor from academia but because they're actually intrigued by suited to embracing of the context they're moving into so i think that's also really important just in the narratives we use around this yeah and i think it's important to share for you to to say that and and for people to share that narrative anyway because i bet a lot of researchers or people who've done phds may feel like that is actually a backward step or some sort of failing on their part not being able to secure and grow like some academic giant and actually if most people end up that way, we should talk about the fact that most people end up that way because that's actually then helps people feel like that's something they should explore, not fall back into. Yeah, sorry. Um, no, I was just, it's, it's a very interesting point they've raised because I think I think a lot of, especially when, when you, if you do a master PhD, there's that, you've got that preconceived idea of what your career is going to look like because this is what you see. So if you do a PhD, you, you move on to be a lecturer, you move mm. on to be a researcher. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it is just exposing to what's happening out there and in a way sort of supporting uh, you know changing mindsets of or just looking at you receive the expertise in research and conducting independent research but this can be applied in many many places mm-hmm. outside or inside academia not just your standard pathway mm-hmm. and so, you know for some disciplines and sectors that path is more well worn so if you're a biological sciences phd moving into yeah. a biotech startup isn't you know fairly visible path and no one would question that you're continuing to be a scientist in that setting i think it's just for certain disciplines and certain uh, sectors it's harder to imagine what a research role or a scientific role looks like and therefore harder for phd students and others to imagine themselves moving into those environments yeah and i think think the other thing is that 
it's sorry mate it, the, the other thing i think is really interesting is the you said it in the last show is the value that someone could then take back to academia if they yeah. went and spent some time in a startup or another organization so that they've got that real world application and they can see what the real pitfalls are and the problems that are faced in trying to collect data or in trying to sort of do things in quite a messy way that's not as not as controlled as it might be in in academia i think we probably still have some way to go in really supporting researchers who've had that kind of varied career path because typically you won't have the same publication record grants record yeah. that you would have had if you stayed in academia and progressed up the ladder um and i think there is you know um there's a lot of um uh, acknowledgement now from from funders and universities that we need to be better at supporting those types of diverse career pathways but i think we have probably yet to see that um, really translate into mm. researchers and scientists who've spent years in other settings and want to move back in. Um, I think we've probably got some way to go in in making sure that is smooth and supported and valued. I, I think it's it, a lot of it also comes down to just showcasing that there's rigor and, and consistent you know, methodologies, approaches to data collection, data analysis, even outside academia. I know our mm -hmm. case in, in public health is when, when we report things, when we talk about the stuff that we do, is just ensuring that we, we showcase how robust and how consistent things are, because that kind of adds up to the level that it's it's in industry, but there's a big level. Exactly. Of, yeah. No, exactly. That's exactly what I've been grappling with in this sort of early stage startup world is what would that look like if you were replicating the kind of career structures, um, uh, you know, publication pipelines, peer communities that you get in other research institutions in this world of startups. I think it'd be much easier for, for scientists to imagine themselves in those roles. And it would also help to break this sort of slightly unhelpful narrative that you're either in research or in industry and you can't be in research in industry. Um, so I think making more visible those types of infrastructures formalizing them connecting them i think that is a really really important part of the puzzle for sure um rachel i want to um move us to to close really i said we'd try and keep a relatively snappy second yeah. section of this podcast we haven't done that um we're, we're up to nearly a full podcast probably um but that's okay i i, I sort of foresaw it might we'll go this way magic <laughs> in the editing suite afterwards. no 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 i think we'll just let people listen to it a lot um we'll see um, so yeah, so I just wondered if you could just tell us a little bit more about how people get hold of you if they wanted to, to sort of get in touch. Yeah, of course. So um, most of the information about our programs and plans are, are on our website um, and we post opportunities also on social media. Um, I am also on Twitter and LinkedIn and things. Um, so I'm Rach underscore Carey on Twitter. Um, and we have a bunch of events online and in our office in central London, which we hold pretty regularly, which are also a good way to get to know us and um, get to know other people in our kind of wider network who, who are united by these areas, missions we focus on. So those are some good places to start. So essentially what you're saying is anyone who's interested in money or climate change <laughs> or ageing, <laughs> can come down and spend some time with you and, and your, your team, can they? So, so uh, the, the overarching missions we focus on are mental health, healthy aging, future of work and climate. 
and we run programs around one of the a slant on one of those missions and we have kind of ongoing recruitment drives depending on the focus that particular year which you'll see on the website but we run events across the board on those different programs um and we're um yeah in the middle of a recruitment drive for our financial resilience cohort right now i'll be honest with you i i if you're not inundated by people coming and joining you for those that that wide ranging set of issues that are affecting everybody right now, I'd be surprised. Um, but, but Rachel, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show twice, even if it's only one <laughs> show in the end. And and my apologies again for not getting it out last year when we when we actually recorded it. Um, no, actually, year before last. Now it was actually in in 2021, wasn't it? Um, An interesting but, but kind you. of twist on the podcast format to just have yeah. sort of brief yes. updates yeah. every year to see what changes and what stays. It also also makes it easier to find guests because I can just, just go back, go back and, and find yeah. some guests from before <laughs> as well. But yes, I do think that'd be interesting actually to see how people have, have uh, moved on. Or of course, the academics will be working on the same studies they were the year before. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, no disrespect to academics, just a joke. Um, but uh, Rachel, thank you very much for your time. I, I, I really appreciate you coming back on. And I think it, it genuinely is a really interesting area that I hope a lot of people um, do look into because I, I, having gone through the startup world myself and uh, sort of being a big fan of the innovation space and bringing behavioral science into that into that real world, hence the show, um, I think it's a really interesting area. Tiago, did you have anything else you want uh, no, to say? No, just, just to reiterate that, thank you so much, Rachel for um, your time. I think there was a lot of thought-provoking conversations and I've listened to the previous show twice, actually, uh, because the, I ended up just, just listening to it out of curiosity and I ended up writing a lot of notes and, and just, just reflections based on what you're saying. So I think I think that pathway and what industry and startups are going to look like um, in terms of from that element of being, you know, conducting a lot of interesting, robust, rigorous stuff um, it, is something that fascinates me. So thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Okay, I just wanted to say thank you again there to Rachel for continuing to support the show by coming on twice in 18 months. Um, and I really like the idea of doing a longitudinal uh, show with people where we get them back and see what they're doing and, and what's happened. Um, just a joke there about the academics, by the way. Don't, don't take any offence to that. Uh, Tiago, you're an academic. I know you want to take an offence to that. Uh, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I actually, I, I found it particularly interesting to kind of see that, especially thinking about rigor in, in industry and, and in startups in terms of behavior science and research. So it's quite interesting mm. uh, for me to, to have that chat. Yeah, I just wanted to, re I just, I just really think that what Rachel and Zinc are doing is, is super interesting. I think probably for us, because we've been in a smaller organization and, and particularly for me as well, like going through that startup process and then thinking about how behavioral science features and right from the get-go is just a super exciting thing I'm, I'm definitely going to get in touch Rachel um, I'm definitely going to get in touch with you after the show and, and see if I can uh, lend my services after this so um, thank you to everybody who's listening if you get a chance to please do um, go on to whichever podcast app you listen this, to this on and rate it rate the show leave a comment and also share with friends and family that makes a big difference to us too I go a it keeps us motivated doesn't it and then b um, it means that somebody else might actually find the show off the back of your recommendation. Yes, absolutely. So if you could do that, we'd really appreciate it. And um, if you could do it now, that would be even better. Yes, do it now. Again, like now. We're just going to sort of believe because there's still now. There's still thirty seconds left now. of us talking. So whilst this is going, you can actually That's be true. doing that. That's true. Uh, in the meantime, thank you again to Rachel. Uh, we look forward to our next guest, who is Tiago Pete Dyson. P. Dyson, yes, who recently wrote the book Transportation for Humans. Transport for Humans? 
Transport for Humans. Who recently wrote the book, Pete Dyson, who recently wrote the book, Transport for Humans with Rory Sutherland. So um, really, really great book, amazing guest, full of insight and a bit, a bit different to the stuff we normally do in, in the public health side. But transport obviously has a big impact on people's uh, health and well-being. So look forward to that show. Thank you very much to Rachel and Tiago. Thank you, sir. Absolutely my pleasure doing the show with my co-host, Dr. Tiago Motella. Thank you so much. It's, it's, always, it's always a great pleasure to share this this space with you, Stuart. Easy. <laughs> Easy. Do you want that to stay? The very high-pitched, hiya. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's funny. Hiya, 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 hiya.